the Evolve to Succeed podcast, where founders, entrepreneurs, business leaders, and experts are interviewed to explore the link between personal and business success. We will also investigate and establish the need for ongoing personal development, accountability, and support. The objective is to inspire you, the audience, to be better in life and in business. Hello, I am Warren Munson, founder of Evolve, and welcome to the first ever edition of the Evolve to Succeed podcast. During the course of this podcast, we interview Mark Cribb, entrepreneur and founder of Urban Guild. Mark, during the course of the interview, explains how traveling the world gave him a love of humanity and hospitality. Going traveling, traveling around the world, the more I traveled, the more I fell in love with people and humanity. And I think the less likely it became that I was going to go and get a job at JP Morgan in the city. And then goes on to explain why there are significant challenges in running a seasonal business and what he has done to overcome them. Human behavior is just very different in February than it is in June and July. It's inevitable, we're all the same. And we can we do live music nights and quiz nights and specials and corporate events and all sorts of stuff. But even all these years later, fundamentally, we make money when it's sunny, break even when it's cloudy and lose money when it rains. And also importantly for me, goes on to explain how it's so vitally important for him to get a balance in life, balancing personal success with that of the business. I think it's essential actually. I think it's probably the only thing that's kept me sane is having that ability to, to have family. Finally, you'll learn why Mark just loves pineapples. Yeah, it's not my love of pineapples, Lauren. It's humanity's love of pineapples for multi-generations. So that's it for me. Let's get on with the show. Hello, Mark, and Hello. welcome. Thank you, Warren. Excited so, to be here. Yeah, well, exciting for me as well. It's the first ever Evolve to Succeed podcast. Excellent. So, so the only way is up. It's got to be. It's yeah. got to be good. <laughs> so uh, we are here today with Mark Cribb, founder of Urban Guild. Uh, Guilty. Restaurateur, bar owner extraordinaire. Yes, uh, thank you. Three soon to be four bars and restaurants under the Guild brand. Is that right? I think that's right. Yeah, I think we did have uh, Urban Renaissance as well, but we closed that one. So yes, okay. live at the moment, number four. Oh, perhaps we'll touch on that during the course yeah, of the maybe. podcast. Yeah. So I suppose the idea of the podcast is just to hear your story and see how that's evolved over time and okay. how the journey's kind of progressed. So should we just kick off with um, what made you? start your own business? I think I'd always known I wanted to be self-employed. So my parents were self-employed. So as a kid, um, I lived in a bed and breakfast for a while in Boscombe. Um, they hated that. My dad used to climb over the back wall of the B&B to get into the building so he didn't have to meet any customers on the way in because okay. he had another job. Uh, and yeah, he didn't really like living where there were customers. So I think I'd been exposed from a very young age to that self-employed world. Uh, and then they had a uh, catering wagon, literally hot dogs and cheeseburgers and stuff on the markets. So they used to do Boscombe Market, Christchurch Market. And I remember this is probably when I was studying and they went away to Australia for a few months and let me run the business while they were gone okay. and keep the cash. And it was still there when they came back? It was still there. Not only that, but I'd actually made some money. And uh, I just don't think it had ever really crossed my mind that I was going to have a career yeah, where I worked for somebody else. So I did then go away and travelled and did some other bits okay. we can get into. But yeah, I think I'd, I'd always wanted to be self-employed. And why hospitality? Yeah, that's a good question. I think I, I, I don't think I realised this at the time, although my parents had kind of been in hospitality. The key thing that I knew through, um, through college and uni and I always knew this was going to be the case. I knew I was going to go traveling. It was never up for debate that I wasn't okay. going to go away. I actually, um, I worked at Tesco's when I was at uni and yeah. I saved my student loans. So you could get a fair bit of debt out of the government at that time. And I was, um, my mates thought I was quite sad because I would literally put all of that debt into the bank and say, I'm going to use that to travel the world rather than spending it on beer when I was at uni. And it was, it was always a non-negotiable. I was like, I'm going to go traveling when I finish. And I don't know, my dad had been in the merchant Navy. So maybe we'd had conversations as a kid. Um, but anyway, going traveling, traveling around the world, the more I traveled, the more I fell in love with people and humanity. And I think the less likely it became that I was going to go and get a job at JP Morgan in the city, the more likely it was I was going to spend my life around Never going to be that people. corporate animal, eh? No, I don't think it was. You know, I, I, I had the, you know, the exam results were there to do it. I was actually yeah. pretty, pretty good. I was a sort of straight A student. So I had the potentially the technical ability, but I don't ever, you know, maybe questioned a couple of times thinking if I was following the money, maybe, you know, banking and stuff like that was the thing to do. 
but no, it was always really going to be yeah, working with working with people. So when did that itch really start needing a scratch? You know, um, so I happens? came back. I came back from travelling. I was away for nearly two years, and um, I nearly bought a uh, an old B and B in down by the railway station in Bournemouth to turn into a youth hostel, uh, because I'd stayed in all these youth hostels travelling. Bournemouth was fundamentally a tourism town. I couldn't understand why we didn't have the sort of places that I'd seen when I was travelling. Um, but I was twenty one maybe when I got back. Uh, had no money, no business experience. Did get fairly close to raising the debt to buy this really rundown old B&B by the railway station to turn into a hostel. But I think it fell through um, fairly late on. And I just thought, you know what, I should probably go and practice with other people's money, first of all. Okay. So that was a good idea. Yeah, I was Yeah, I was intelligent <laughs> enough to kind of go, okay, 21, yeah, I probably don't know everything. And, and also I was quite bored. Having been away for two years in Bournemouth, it just felt a little bit sort of same, same. And I'd never really enjoyed London. But I, what I did recognise from London is it felt like travelling because it had so many cultures and so many uh, nationalities and because I always felt lost. And my now wife then, uh, what was she then? Probably just somebody I was chasing. Ex-girlfriend, actually. We'd been out for a while before I went away. Um, she'd gone up to London and got a job as a teacher. So I thought, sod it, I'm going to go to London. And I went to London and, and got a job. Um, what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> I, I could go through minute by minute now. Yeah. No, the question was, what made you uh, what scratch was the, the, what was the scratch itch? Yeah, so we decided to come back to uh, Bournemouth. We were up in London for eight or nine years. Yeah. Uh, I'd, I'd run health clubs and leisure centres, a sort of hospitality. But again, I'd done, yeah, that's it. I'd done the 10 years then uh, working for somebody else and thought, right, now I've learned enough. Everywhere I'd worked, I'd had sort of double digit growth. Um, you know, I'd, I'd gone up the career ladder fairly fast. I'd run multi-million pound health clubs and leisure centres by this point. So I proved to myself that I was capable of running a business. So I came back with, with a CV uh, and then just started looking around for things in hospitality. I checked out an old coffee coffee house in Wimborne, um, but found this really rundown old B&B in Boscombe. And, and it kind of scratched that ish again back to the youth hostel from yeah. 10 years previously. But this time it was a boutique hotel. So everything I'd learned while I was traveling was about hospitality and informality and friendliness. But London had taught me about plasma tellies and, and like a hot shower and not sleeping in a bunk bed. And I just thought, well, I'll merge the two. So yeah, found this old rundown B&B and uh, decided, right, now's the time. I've proved myself. I'm going to do it. And what was that original ambition you had for the business? Business. So you found uh, <laughs> this kind of rundown B and B and turn it into a boutique style hotel. But what was the ambition? What was, it was pretty. Um, what was good going to look like? Yeah, it was pretty conservative, to be honest. Well, I, I also learned going out and trying to raise money uh, was still really challenging. I didn't. I'd never heard of kind of corporate brokers and stuff. So I just wrote a business plan and naively turned up at um, banks and said, "Hey, I've got a business plan to buy this old sort of B and B and make it better." It was never. I think I had like a four or five year forecast, and I was going to get the revenue up to maybe three hundred and fifty k, something like that, over three or four years. Whereas we ended up going from fifty eight k to one point one million in thirty six months. So we ended up completely blowing away what we thought we were going to do. But I'd already learned one to be fairly conservative, or the banks just laughed you at the building and two having had lots of no's at branch level got introduced to a broker and was told very much um, you need to yeah you know write down not necessarily what you think is going to happen but what you can make the bank believe is going to happen and banks are quite conservative and so still that was make a key look, lesson and still make it look viable absolutely numbers have got to be viable you work backwards really you go right how much have you got to borrow um, you know what, what do you need what do you need the numbers to do to make that viable what's your get out plan and actually write that fairly conservatively um yeah, and that's probably carried on, I suppose, in that in that raising debt is is writing what you need to do to get the debt rather than necessarily what you actually think you're going to achieve because we've overachieved financially, yeah, in the main, certainly turnover-wise. Brilliant. So what what did it really feel like in those early few months of the business? Um, it was it was um, it was very hard work. So we we moved into a rundown old B and B just before Christmas. So the reality was straight into you know even day one there were guests staying in this rundown old B and B. Not not my target market at all. It was a lot of um, tradespeople from uh, who were working out at the airport. It was it was your kind of I think I always remember it was pork chops. I think the first night it was pork chops and chips, uh, tins of uh, Castlemaine Forex in this little white fridge behind the bar, and I was. 
running the bar at night, serving these 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 workers tins of beer for a couple of quid each until sometimes two in the morning, then getting up at six in the morning and making their breakfast. Then while they were out all day, I was making their food ready for the evening. They were paying someone like 25 quid a night for dinner, bed and breakfast. So it was cheap as chips. All it really was was graft. I was the chef. I was trying to paint and decorate the place. I was the chambermaid. Uh, for two years, I had five days off in two years and worked pretty much from six in the morning till often one or two in the morning just desperately trying to make it work. But every single penny we took, I was living in the building. Fiona, my became wife the following April after we moved in, was a teacher. So we lived off her salary. We lived in the building. And it, and, and yeah, fundamentally it was just graft, but it was never particularly terrifying at that stage. That came later, I think. But at that stage, it was just, you just did what you needed to do to-, to And was that out of passion and belief, you think? I think I'd always thought by that point, whatever asset I got my hands on, I would sweat it and make it work financially. So I had this asset and and I could get people in. At the time it was a B&B, but quite quickly I opened it to the public. I opened the bar. I started doing food to the public. It was kind of like, here's an asset. Uh, how do I make it make as much money as possible or at least take as much money as possible? Because every penny I take, I can then reinvest to create what I want it to be. Because it was a million miles from what I knew it would be. It was a chintzy, flowery, old-fashioned, smelly. So there was no big bang. Here we are. No, this is it. This is the concept. It was a. Kind of, it was an evolution. It was in terms very, of the concept. It's all we could afford. Every single penny I had uh, went into actually buying the building, and we racked up credit card debts. I went out and got loans for cars that I didn't spend on cars. You know, I was maxed out credit-wise. Um, so there was no way that I could open it as I intended it to be. The first thing we ever got made actually was some branded coffee cups because it's all I could afford. But I used to say to people when they came in, um, the quality of those cups with a little logo on them, but this is 15 years ago, so there weren't hundreds of coffee shops on every corner like they are now. But I would say, look, this is this is what it will one day be uh, be like, the rest of this. Basically, this, this detail will be through the whole business. And was there a moment in those early years when you absolutely felt that you were on track? This was it. This is what it was all about. Or was it just... Hard graft. No, it was just graft. I think I, I got a bit of confidence to at least realise we were going to smash what we told the bank we were going to do because I think we did it in year one, certainly year two. Um, so I think year one, I think we did about 180 grand in year one, which was which was triple what we were you know, turning over when we bought it. Uh, and then we did f- just over 500K in year two and then a million in year three. So the speed of growth was Fantastic really fast. Growth, yeah, so I, but I don't think I was there thinking, oh, here we go, I'm going to be a millionaire. You know, all my dreams come true. I was just grafting. Uh, but I was enjoying it in that sort of sick, crazy, overworked way that entrepreneurs yeah. do in the early years where you just, you don't really stop to think about what you're doing. It's just about creating fulfilling the building's potential really and fulfilling the business's potential and it was all about trying to make it through that so if you reflect now and look back mm. on those first two or three years yeah is there three kind of words that you used to describe <laughs> it other than graph yeah three words is hard I, I i look back on it regularly and and regularly tell people i couldn't do it again um but i guess uh it was exciting um it became terrifying but i still think that was probably later exhilarating and uh, and it was definitely exhausting, yeah. But it was it was fun. It was definitely fun. It was fun because you you have the privilege, I think, as an entrepreneur, to take something that's only exists in your head and then turn it into reality. So like as a kid, where we build something out of Lego, it's like that on an extreme, isn't it? We actually, you know, there it was, this thing that had only existed in my imagination. I was proud. I was definitely proud. Two years in, I think I was proud to go. Look, I didn't screw it I up. I think, yeah, I think you're right, Mark. I think that that joy of the early years is about you're turning a dream into reality, isn't it? And you'll do whatever it takes. Yeah, it took and me a long you do time. Make those sacrifices to get the momentum behind it. Yeah, you look at the definition of an entrepreneur later I think when you sort of especially then because that word wasn't really used no. 15 years ago it's become much more common now and then you try and go oh, uh, you know all of a sudden people start introducing you as an entrepreneur and I go I always thought those guys were a bit of an arsehole to be honest but is that why I am and uh, maybe that's because I'm now an arsehole I don't know I don't think I am um, but you look at the word and you go yes definitely part of it is risk but the biggest thing for me that entrepreneurs do is they create things that don't exist and that doesn't mean you know bars and restaurants and hotels have existed for a long time but but your own kind of style your own niche your own sort of way of doing it and and that's that's a privilege, I think, to to have that freedom and that opportunity to bring something into the world yeah. from your imagination is amazing. It's like a kid filling in a colouring in a you know a drawing or something like that. And I think that's true, isn't it? I think that whatever your sector, whatever you do, that entrepreneurism 
is about the creativity and putting that creativity into it and being disruptive or doing something different or exuding that passion in what you do and creating a business from it. Yeah, again, I think looking back, without a doubt, creativity is key. Uh, Probably the reason that I could never have gone off and just worked in the city is I would have missed that. Definitely the bit I love now you know entrepreneurs we have that shiny new toy syndrome and that's the bit i love you know the creating the next thing i'm less fussed once the restaurant opens whether we're going to run out of toilet roll or teaspoons doesn't excite me in the same way as to yeah what it's going to look like and how people will feel when they're in there and the brand and the excitement of opening and that's not necessarily a good thing it's just the reality and over the years you kind of realize that's your strength so we've got you've gone from one sort of b&b yes run down yep needs renovating, rejuvenating, new clientele, turning it into kind of a bar, a restaurant, and a functioning boutique hotel, to the point where you've got multiple units. So yeah. how did that come about? <laughs> you know, where did you find the time to do that, Mark? Yeah. Uh, again, I think if you, if you started with the objective of what you were going to end up with, people would have laughed at you, and there's no way you could have worked out, you know, how you were going to get there. Although... You know, other people open hundreds of venues across the country and seem to manage to do it. But for me, um, it was just incremental. You know, an opportunity came up down on the seafront to bid for a building. And as a kid, I remember going to Torremolinas and Playa de las Americas and places like that with my dad and uh, and, and the rest of my family. But I remember my dad sat on the beach and he, he was into his frozen daiquiris. So he'd sit on the sand and I'd be like, wow, it's funny that in Bournemouth we don't get this. You know, we don't get restaurants on the beach in the same way that you do uh, in the Med. And it used to bug me even then because I was proud of Bournemouth. I liked it as a town. It was, it, was, it was a nice place, but I couldn't understand why it wasn't very cool. So the natural extension to trying to create a, a cool or a more relevant or a younger orientated hotel was to go, why can't we also have a you know, really good restaurant on the beach? Um, and I was convinced at the time that somebody like Jamie Oliver would get it or one of the big brands or Kentucky Fried Chicken or something, that just somebody better known than yeah. little old Mark Cribb. You know, or in Harry Boscombe. Ramsons. Yeah, exactly. Imagine if that happened. In Bournemouth, there was actually a Ramsons and a Kentucky Fried Chicken. At least one of them went. Um, but I put in a tender and the tender was pretty good. It was, it was a tender to the council and uh, it was like a hundred page. As far as I was concerned, I treated it like a dissertation. So I'd done my degree in leisure management and I wrote it. It was, it was a hundred page document. It was well presented. It went through menus and branding and what I would do with this place. And, uh, and I remember to this day getting the phone call when I was in the hotel reception and being told we'd been awarded the contract to build this restaurant, which terrified me. Um, because I realised I was going to need to get a load more debt. We were right then at the at the sort of the, you know, the edge of this financial Armageddon that had happened back in 2008. Um, but yeah, that was the start of the next stage. So that was another leap off a very high building. Yeah, that Did was, that, that, that like was that? probably the one actually where the, the, the being terrified kicked in. So I think up till then, I was fairly confident um, that I was, you know, doing all right with this little B&B and, and, and every day sort of made money. I didn't have a massive team. So at the end of the day, I'd count the money in the tills and I had more money than I had, you know, that morning in the yeah. tills. And that was a very That's simple a great business way model. To run a business. It was really good. It was really simple. I look back uh, with great fondness. Uh, but then all of a sudden, so we opened in May, I think November that year of the first year of running, we had some accounts, <laughs> whether they were from you or our bookkeeper at the time. And they basically said we'd lost £21,000 in November. So 30 days in November. And I was like, holy crap, you know, we're losing nearly a thousand pounds a day. If we carry on losing a thousand pounds a day, we'll be bankrupt in six weeks. That's the point where the fear kicked in. And I thought, I'm, you know, I'm pretty um, good, you know, gift of the gab, a little bit charismatic, kind of thought I'll just crack on. Shit will work itself out as it does, as us entrepreneurs believe. And it was at that point when probably the doubt kicked in. And I went, you know what, maybe the bank the three banks that I spoke to that said no were right. Uh, maybe I shouldn't have gone for this one. Uh, and that's the kind of sleepless nights. And actually to the point where you'd walk around and, and feel like you might throw up on the spot because you, that, that genuine kind of slightly crippling fear, which on one side is a real buzz and gives you real energy, but on the other side at night is debilitating and by day is energizing. And yeah, thought I might puke. Um, and I remember getting everybody in the company together and saying, right, you know, we're going to have to be a grown up business now we've really got to sort our crap out luckily I had run proper businesses so although I wasn't running that one as one we didn't really have HR policies management accounts and all the stuff we should have but that's where that kind of real life experience working life comes into play isn't it and my story is similar I I reflect on it and I don't know how I survived it but I actually couldn't do what I do now and couldn't become the person I am if I hadn't done that 10 years of working for others and being that corporate person yeah I do think it's important maybe less people do it now but that that bit where you do go off and practice you draw back to that you go okay I have run 
companies that are like this before that actually do have some systems so whereas we have that creative let's just build it it'll work it out sometimes you've got to sit back and go okay right maybe there is a point of having an hr policy and a, and a contract to work and some systems in place so yeah it's probably important to get that gives you a different perspective but i've got yes. huge admiration for those that just come out and do it and achieve and yeah, succeed and learn yeah, although, although a lot of new businesses now seem to, certainly with the crowdfunding, maybe get enough capital invested early on that they yeah. that they buy the talent and the investors around them. So some that seem to really grow quick have the deep enough pockets to buy advice. Whereas I think when you and I did it, it it's kind of like, yeah, there, there was no choice. I had to do it all because I didn't have any money. So that theme just seemed to carry on for multiple <laughs> years. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the bit where it gets easy and you just sit back and count the cash. When does that come? I don't know. <laughs> Tell is me that when you get your book. There. I can get to the last chapter. <laughs> it doesn't appear in the book yet. Yeah. No. So, was there a moment? You know, for those that don't know, you know, this is a kind of um, it is a venue well known in Bournemouth, right on the Boscombe front, right near Boscombe Pier, that was once some toilets and a shelter, yes. and became this kind of restaurant. There must have been a kind of aha moment, a moment of joy when you saw that come to life? Yeah, that that's probably the one, although Urban Beach has got my blood, sweat and tears in it and I'm proud of it because I built it, literally painted it, you know, re re rebuilt the chairs and all that. Urban Reef is probably the one that takes me back to those childhood memories of travel the most. And when I stand in the sea, still now to be fair, but if I stand in the sea, having a little paddle and I look back at the building in the height of the season and there might be a live band playing outside and there'll be people queuing for the takeaway next door and the balcony will have 150 people on it and there might be 200 people down downstairs and and it's turning over I don't know you know a couple of thousand pounds an hour without a doubt I've got this huge grin on my face not because of the money but just because you go that place with that energy and that buzz and that vibe only exists because I built it and I say I knowing how much support I get from the team and how many people around it but you've got to be that trigger of actually putting your balls on the line and going look we're gonna we're gonna build it so now it's there's loads of us that make it happen but yeah if i hadn't done that first thing it would have been something that else. original drive and creativity yeah, but to it try wouldn't, and create it wouldn't something have been that. maybe it. yeah maybe somebody would have done something cooler but i doubt it when i look at all the other places on the seafront you know i think urban reef is it's got its own vibe and its own soul and it's quite unique and that's what i wanted to do i wanted to bring a bit of my overseas travel and a bit of my london life and just try and make Bournemouth a little bit more kind of relevant, I suppose. And yeah, and I, th I think we've done that. It's not for everybody because by not being formulaic, by, by making everything fresh on site, by, you know, insisting on ridiculous purchasing approaches to sustainability and environmental stuff that just makes the, the, the chef's life really, really difficult. It's way easier to run a restaurant where you open the freezer door on a busy day and keep it shut on a quiet day. And we don't do that. So I've made it hard, um, but I love it. Great. So that was a moment where you'd gone from being this owner-operator, hands-on, to having two venues. One very large venue, very busy in the summer in particular. How did you make that transition then from being the individual in control of everything, dealing with everything day to day, to delegating responsibility to others? Because that is a transition that a lot of business owners find mm. difficult. I think that's where I was either lucky or, or good planning, going back to that, that I had run businesses like that before. So when I'd run this health club in, in London, it turned over 10 million a year, it employed 100 odd people. And I knew certainly a lot of B&B owners stay sub that 100K revenue, don't really employ managers, don't employ a team, live on site for many, many years. People have it as a lifestyle business for years I never really went into it with that objective it was always going to be as big as and as good as it can be I didn't know what that would look like but it was never like I was just going to pause it so I think the structure of big bigger corporate business and that ability that ability to delegate I'd done that all of my career the 10 years previously I didn't answer every call for the first two years in Urban Beach I checked every single guest in every guest out and I answered every phone call but it was just while I had to whilst I was learning and whilst I was the only or very few members of the team as soon as I could employ people I did and it, I didn't find it that difficult to delegate because I'd done it historically and I knew that you couldn't run a bigger business without being surrounded by people so then it just becomes about finding amazing people that you can trust okay and then along came Jenkins and Sons 
Uh, yeah, sort of. I think the order was we we did Renaissance. The first thing that came along is we we would hemorrhage cash in the winter at Urban Reef and make yeah. cash in the summer. So the first thing that happened is we needed to work out if there was a way of avoiding that. So actually, the first thing we did was build a big balcony to extend our. Uh, ability to get more customers in in the summer and then that had a covered area underneath the balcony which extended our winter and then the second one was to go down to the Russell Coates Museum and open a cafe in a museum with the logic that on a rainy day people would go to an indoor attraction so I thought a museum next to a beach would be a great attraction on it rained and on a sunny day people would maybe go to the seafront and come and eat with us so we were just looking at that time as a way of smoothing out our peaks and troughs and then that was probably the same a year or so later with Jenkins and Sons where we just we started to lose really good managers and really good team members in the winter because we couldn't afford to pay them because seafront restaurants in the winter no matter what you do are way quieter than they are in the summer it's dark at four o'clock in the afternoon in February so you're nowhere near as going to be as busy as you are in June when it's light until 10 o'clock in the evening. And that's a challenge for a lot of the tourism and hospitality sector, isn't it, across Hugely, yeah. Yeah, whatever you do, if you're in a tourism town and uh, you rely on tourists, human behaviour is just very different in February than it is in June and July. It's inevitable. We're all the same. And we we do live music nights and quiz nights and specials and corporate events and all sorts of stuff. But even all these years later, fundamentally, we make money when it's sunny, break even when it's cloudy and lose money when it rains, no matter what else we do. So all the way through the journey, the, the backstory has been trying to smooth out the peaks and troughs of seasonality. So how many weather apps have you got on your phone? <laughs> <laughs> I was probably looking at the weather about uh, three minutes before you walked into the building thinking, man, I need to get over this obsession with weather. So yeah, 15 years in. Um, I have, I only have one, but it is hourly. Right. Yeah, literally. Just down hourly. to that final Yeah, detail. and it's so important. You know, we'll, we'll look at trying to send the staff home at... at um, you know, one o'clock, but one o'clock's lunchtime. So if it's going to rain at um, two or if it's going to rain at midday, that's very different because you're going to lose service. You know, for me, I hate it. Friday afternoons and it starts to rain just as everybody's going to knock off from work. Beautiful sunny Friday morning, three o'clock it starts to rain and I know that I'm going to lose that trade. Rain on a Saturday cost me 10 grand. Rain on a Monday cost me two grand. I'm obsessed by the weather and uh, it's very frustrating and then <laughs> there's no win because if it's really good weather on a Saturday now that I've got a wife and a couple of kids and some toys that we want to go and play with um, I, I want to go and hang out with them and enjoy the weather uh, but actually I'm probably crapping myself about the fact the restaurant's actually getting a bee sting and I can't switch off so yes it's, it's um, right. I, I and that's an interesting mix in itself isn't it obviously got married during this journey two yes. kids yes have you managed that balance? Um, I think it's essential, actually. I think it's probably the only thing that's kept me sane is having that ability to, to have family. And, and I've always been consciously incompetent rather than subconsciously incompetent, which I think is really important. So if, if I'm failing, you know, travelling for two years, working in this industry, which is all about human beings, and then not actually having the presence to spend time with your family would just be ridiculous. And and it happens all too often in hospitality. There's a lot of um, people who get addicted to booze or addicted to the hours because we are fundamentally busy when other people not. But it comes back to your previous question about that ability to delegate. So I buy my time off and I'm not perfect at it because it's hard to relax when you know your business is busy but you only get one chance to spend time with your wife and spend time with your kids. And and like I say, it's that conscious incompetence. I'm not perfect at it. At least I know that I'm not good at it. And I know when I need to make more effort with it. So yeah, so it's been there. I never went into the business because I wanted to be a workaholic. I went into it because I wanted to create something and I wanted financial freedom, but I wanted that freedom so that I could do stuff that's really important. Do the things you love in life. Yeah, Yeah, which is definitely hanging out with the kids. They're 11, 10 and 11 now. And uh, I think I've got that right. And, um, That's a great age. Yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah, and I, and I still I want to spend more time with them than I do. But I don't think I ever missed a bath time, even in those first couple of years when it was bonkers, bonkers busy. I always made sure I got home. You know, did a bath, read a story. Um, but yeah, it's 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 a challenge, but it does keep you sane. Yeah. So how do you? Because that is you know um, you do it and you do it really well, Mark. But it's a challenge that a lot of business owners face yes is how to get that balance it is another other than being sort of you know conscience about it mm. how do you go about doing it do you set out time or do you is it more ad hoc than that do you let it ebb and flow yeah I, I guess uh you know try and grab the moments when i can but i do run a really you know they say if you want something done ask a busy person so i do run a very tight diary uh somebody said to me this morning oh you know i appreciate you doing that you're so busy and i'm like you know what actually time is the level isn't it we've all got 24 hours in a day 
So that's our base point. You know, we're all really as busy as each other. We fill the same amount of time a day. It's just how we fill it. And and I, I do, I'm probably a bit of an obsessive over efficiency kind of apps. I get up really early in the morning. I was morning just about to, to say, one of my questions I've got is about morning routines. Yeah. You know, what's become, your morning routine? become more a fan of that in the last few years. At some points, really good at it. And, and I, you know, I do, fundamentally, I'm a morning person anyway. So running bars and restaurants and being a morning, A, not being a massive drinker, and B, uh, being a morning rather than a nighttime person is probably unusual. So most people, and, and actually most people, or a lot of people in hospitality do it because they can't do anything else. You kind of fall into it a little bit because you end up getting a bar job. But I actually, it was always a conscious decision for me. So I always wanted to do it in the first instance. So I always came into it with a level of business acumen. Um, and then, yeah, I was never really, I, I always shut my restaurants at 11 o'clock at night. I never wanted to run a club. I find really drunk people quite annoying. So I always shut before, and then set them off somewhere else. Uh, and then, yeah, and I love the morning. So actually, you know, setting my alarm and getting up at five o'clock, you really can get ahead of the day. So my ideal morning routine uh, and what's actually happening at the moment, I'm in the process of building another restaurant at the moment. We've got, you know, launched my own podcast. I've got a lot on, so we're not, we're not nailing it, but I still love the days where I get up and get ahead but my perfect scenario is where I get up I do a quick um, seven minute workout routine I'll do a 10 minute meditation just to clear my headspace I, I love keeping a little gratitude journal where I write down three or four things that I'm grateful for because it's really hard to be in a bad mood if you start the day going how bloody lucky am I you know a I live in a peaceful country you know let alone in a peaceful part of the world you know I live 100 meters from the beach you know I'm self-employed there's so many things that, that that make it yeah hard to be in a bad mood for but then I'll try and um, try and crack on with my day. I hate email. I loathe it with a passion. It just, I feel like an email machine. You know, I just feel that we drown in this admin of boring, tedious emails. I don't know why we've created this beast, but I'll at least try and get them out of the way early on in the day so I can crack on with stuff. But yeah. And then do you ignore your emails as far no. as you can during the day? Is it kind of get it clear? Yeah, I try and get it clear so I can get on with other stuff. But so much, you know, I've got a hundred odd people working in the team. We've got multiple venues. We use Slack, we use WhatsApp, Messenger, email. A lot of the day is still far too reactive. You're not just reinvented email in yeah, lots of different forms. Definitely, <laughs> exactly, yeah. And, it, and it's disruptive, it interrupts. Um, so it might, you know, my role now where I try and be a uh, future gazer, so I try and be ahead of what's coming next, um, means that I, I, I try and clear those blocks of time that aren't interrupted. But now I'm far from nailing that. I just get really grumpy about doing it, but I still do it, Warren. <laughs> it drives me bonkers. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. And is that how you get your creativity flowing then? Is that, you know, by clearing your kind of backlog? Yeah, not and... by answering emails. Um, yeah, I've got a dog. So I, I walk the dog okay. a lot and uh, and I think I have a lot of ideas. I think ideas happen in the gaps. So it's really important to create gaps. So I think we're, we're all guilty of constantly doing, constantly doing, thinking, oh, I'll get my ideas by going on the internet and doing some research or I'll, I'll go to a bar. But actually, I think, you know, leave yourself space sometimes. So sometimes I'll be in a heavy research mode and I listen to a lot of podcasts and a lot of audio books and a lot of inspiration to get fired up. But sometimes I'll deliberately just... Yeah, have have nothing, and uh, and dog walks or long bike rides, as you know. Yeah. Um, you know, you go and climb a mountain for two hours on a bike, and and all you can focus on is breathing and pedaling. Your mind drifts off, doesn't yeah. it? So, I yeah, often it say yeah, that it's that ability to be enable you to be present, but it also is that ability to just stop and reflect is really powerful. But you've got to let your mind empty first, definitely. Uh, yeah. And it's doing things like that, isn't it? It's just yeah. taking yourself out of the environment yes. and giving your mind something else to focus Definitely, on, yeah. Um, that creates that moment to be creative. Massively. Yeah, I certainly don't get creative answering emails. That's not the place. All I get there is angry and annoyed, particularly when you get so many that you've got to kind of put a day at the weekend aside or you're doing it late into the evening and stuff like that. I don't know how we get rid of those. And I get so much feedback from customers and I've, I've put other people in charge of answering most of it now, but still a number come through to me and people do rightly, understandably expect a reply. And I just end up being really honest. I'm sorry, I'm sorry it's taken me three weeks to get to reply to this. I just don't know how to solve this problem. I get too many messages and uh, I just tell the truth. <laughs> So you've mentioned twice now sort of technology and how it helps you be more efficient and yes. more effective. And I know you've invested a lot into your own kind of hub club, you know, and loyalty scheme. You also talked about emails and therefore the negative side of technology. As, on the whole, do you think technology is 
improving your life and your business? Yeah, so I think what it's given me, the key thing it gives me the ability to do, and I, and I hope I'm right with this, let's say it's that conscious incompetence thing, but it means I can manage the business from anywhere, anytime. So I guess the ideal scenario is probably uh, don't have the tech and when you leave the office, you don't have to think about it. But I think that's so unrealistic for an entrepreneur who's created their own business that we are obsessive. So if we didn't have the tech, I'd be there. So if I didn't have technology, I would probably be involved in every service. And how can you do that? How can I be in every restaurant at eight o'clock at peak time on a Saturday night? Whereas if I'm connected to the restaurants, I might be in my caravan in Manu Forest with the kids camping at the weekend and I might have to be distracted for five or 10 minutes while maybe I chip in about an issue or... I don't know, delivery might have gone down or, or the, the, the EPOS system might have gone down. You know, we rely on tech so much to process credit card machines, whatever it might be. There are things in service that in the main now, you know, all of those examples people could deal with. But in the earlier days, actually being connected and knowing they were happening and being able to step in, actually knowing they weren't happening was key. Whereas if I was away from the business and I didn't have the tech, I would constantly be thinking, oh, I wonder what's going on, I wonder what's going on, and feel the need to dial in. Whereas, so yes, yeah, so I think in the main, I, I do, I am tech, I do love the fact that I can dial into the camera system if need be on my phone from anywhere on planet Earth and check out what's going on in the businesses, which I don't do, but knowing I can, I think makes it more likely that I don't need to be physically so the ability that the you location. have that control and visibility is yes enough. i either need a therapist or a phone <laughs> warren i don't know which they <laughs> would probably stick just with your phone with for now yeah we'll we? go with phone but probably cheaper just about uh, and so um one of the things i'd use to describe you is an obsession for pineapples <laughs> do you want to explain uh, your love of pineapples yeah yeah it's not my love of pineapples warren it's humanity's love of pineapples for multi-generations so uh the pineapple uh story in hospitality which is only something i learned probably four years ago um, but i do love the reason i love hospitality is I love stories. So the biggest thing that I do in my business is you know, I have the privilege of representing amazing people who do amazing things. So the best bakers, you know, the best farmers who, who rear amazing animals that we can turn into, into products, um, the best people who look after those. There's just stories. Hospitality is full of stories. Some of the booze, you know, the prohibition area about where cocktails originated and all that kind of stuff. So I love stories and I love authenticity. So when I heard the story of the pineapple, which was basically the captains of the ships out in the Americas eight, 900 years ago would be off traveling, sometimes for months on end. And they'd be going on the trade routes, uh, maybe on the uh, coffee or spices or salts or fruits and all that kind of stuff. And they would be in the tropics and they'd see these weird, I mean, pineapple's a weird looking fruit, isn't it? You know, you might have an apple or a pear at home, but you see a pineapple, you don't know what it is. Something unique, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So they would be intrigued by them. And it became a tradition that they would bring to, to prove that they'd been away somewhere tropical. They would bring them back to their village and they would stake them to their front doors. So their wooden front doors, they would stake it to the door. And it meant, hey, I'm back. I've been away somewhere really interesting, which means I've probably got great boots great food and great stories and it was open to the villagers to just come on in it meant my door is open come on in share the foods share the stories um, so over the next few hundred years it became a tradition that pineapples would appear any big banquets um, you could they were really expensive so you could hire them and you would hire them and you'd put them on top of your buffet and it became a sign that you were going to have a great party and there might be these big bowls of punch being sloshed around and everyone would be getting hammered um, and the pineapple would became a, a key kind of part of that so you'll see it carved outside hotels any big hotels in London you walk into reception there'll be a pineapple somewhere on door knockers quite often but it's a symbol of welcome and hospitality and in this tech dominated world that we're in that genuine genuine kind of human desire to share stories and spend time with each other uh, I get really excited about because we're on on planet earth for such a short period of time with our friends and our family so the whole thing around hospitality gets me buzzing and the pineapple is just a tiny, tiny little thing that has so much meaning behind it. So yeah. yeah, so if I see a pineapple, I smile and I think that is a reason for humanity there. Fantastic. What a response. Yeah. See, look, <laughs> listeners, obsessed with off. pineapple. Press the pineapple, pineapple button. He's gone. He I've got another <laughs> three hours on pineapples. So let, let's just bring your story completely up to date then. So okay. about to launch... Uh, New venue. Yeah, like an idiot. Tell us a bit about so, that so how that's come about. Yeah, well, I mean, fundamentally, hospitality is genuinely really difficult. It's a stupid business. I've, I've, over the years, I've met a number of wealthy people 
who tell me that there's no way they would invest in restaurants or they have invested in restaurants and there's no way they'd invest in restaurants again. And, uh, and, and the more I've learned, the more you go, yeah, I can see why. There's too many moving parts. So many of those moving parts are human beings. The weather has an impact. We've got this perfect storm at the moment of rising food costs, pension costs. It's a really difficult business. So at the end of last summer, I thought, you know what, 15 years, although I love hospitality, maybe it's time to do something else. And I looked at property as an example and I just thought, People pay their rent, whether it's raining or sunny. Regular monthly income doesn't have these crazy fluctuations. I'll go and get involved in property. And it just shows that, like, you know, I, I remember chatting to David Sachs recently who'd got out of hospitality. So he owns a restaurant yeah. and he owned the museum and, uh, you know, a couple of others locally. And he got out of it for 10 years and, funny enough, worked in property. But he's just come back and opened a restaurant. And you look and you go, what is it about hospitality that lures you back in when you know how bloody hard it is and what, you know, how expensive it is to invest? And I'll get to the point in a minute. But I, I, I went and looked at property and ended up going and chatting to this guy in town. And uh, he said, yeah, property, yeah, great. But let me just show you this, um, this location I've got. I'm thinking of owning a a restaurant and I went out the back onto these terraces in Bournemouth town centre well, that have got sort of panoramic views over the town centre in the gardens and straight away I could I could feel that that kind of energy and buzz through my veins where I went holy shit this should be a restaurant this is like yeah. right in the heart of the town centre in the same way that Urban Reef overlooks the ocean and I think it's one of the best views in town this is probably the second best view in town and I just knew it I probably knew it within three or four minutes that we were going to start a trajectory that would mean this would turn into a restaurant it. and it's a bit of a curse because I could see it I don't look at those terraces even within ten minutes I looked at the terraces and I saw people sitting down clinking glasses of, of wine and you know Prosecco I saw the festoon lights I can hear the music the laughter and it's not about money. It's about, it really still, it's definitely not about money because then I would have run away. It's about kind of seeing that vision in your head and going, there could be 200 people out here spending you know, an anniversary together or some time together or hanging out with their spouses or their partners or a business meeting. And you can feel it. You can feel that energy and you can see it in your head. And then you go, shit, I'm one of the lucky buggers who could actually create that because I know how to do it and what a buzz that'll be. Uh, and the frustrating thing of that is you still might mess it up. Anyway, it opens in three weeks or maybe two. Wow. So that's that coming back to that kind of focus and a passion and a belief in what you do again, yeah. re-emerging yes. 15 years later. Yeah, ridiculous. Even though you know all of the pain and all the problems and all the things that might not work out, because we, you know, we've closed one place, we're in the process yeah. of selling another place, okay. yet here I am building another one like a sucker for punishment. But I'm bloody <laughs> excited. I'm, I'm, I'm now... I'm just a bit more relaxed about it. I'm nervous as to whether it will work or not, but I'm also more relaxed to kind of go, well, you know, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But um, yeah. But that is hospitality or product businesses, isn't it? You it don't is. get a field test. It's, no. You build it. Yeah. It's that field of dreams moment, isn't it? It's the uh, yeah. Kevin Cosner. Definitely. Piece. Build, build it, it and they will come. come. Yeah, or will they? Yeah. yeah. But it's a, it's it's it is exciting. I, you know, I I and what a privilege if you're going to have a bit of a legacy, you know, to create fundamentally I create the time for human beings to spend time with each other that's what I create I create these environments for them to do that I don't think there's any greater privilege than seeing people spend time with their friends and family and has that reinvigorated you not to look at property or something else or some other sort of sector and just focus on hospitality it's, it, it, again it's, it's very much made me realise how much I love it um, maybe in six months time I'll realise how much I hate it when, when I think back to last October where I could have just walked away and gone right 15 years tough summer that's enough you know it's time to do something else uh, it's reinvigorated my passion for it but then the other one is, is probably doing my own podcast and, and I'm going yeah. around and I'm interviewing other people and what I love, and I guess it's the same in any So industry. this is about humans of hospitality, yeah, isn't it? Exactly. So this is that human element coming out again. It's, it's really going, you know what? I'm, I'm pretty exhausted. So I'm, I'm not going to go and open another 20, 30 restaurants. I was never going to open a chain of restaurants. Each one for me is unique. Um, each one fits its location. Each one I have to get passionate, excited about, and therefore rolling out. Never say never, but I'd be surprised if I rolled out a formula formulaic, um, I'm just having a little flashback to somebody who is, but I won't mention their name because we'll probably get sued. But you know, there are chefs that just just roll out these kind of um, these formulas. Um, but it's a different model, isn't it? It's it is. one you can admire, but it is yeah. a different model, isn't it? But recognizing how hard it is, what I wanted to do is I wanted to go off to the public and go, you know, you know how hard some of these people are grafting. So this week's was a great example. William Curley, who's uh, it took him twelve years to win this Master of Culinary Arts, which is the you know the highest accolade you can have in hospitality. It's every four years. It's up in London. It's judged by you know the Rue Brothers and some of the best hospitality professionals in the world. And the level of dedication. And this this was a chocolatier, you know, and he's got to know you know where do the best cocoa 
cocoa beans in the world come from and what's the best ingredients that you make and the, the finesse and the detail. He's dedicated his whole life just to chocolate and pastry. And when you meet people, you know, all these Michelin-starred chefs who have dedicated their whole lives to, to really knowing their craft or whether it's the farmer that knows how to grow, the, you know, to look after the best animals or the cheese maker, people have dedicated their lives to this, yet people turn all of this into a commodity. We just go into... You know, we go into a, a into a bar and pick the olives that are on the table and and eat them without even really doing it consciously. Yet there's olive trees behind that bowl of olives that have been there two and a half thousand years, multi generational people in Syria who are grafting their nuts off to produce it. And I think we're losing that connection to food. The industrialization of food. I'm going off on one now, but in the last oh, sixty we'll years, we'll bring you back yeah, it's, it's just um, it, it, we've got this ridiculous disconnect. And I hope it's the only time we've had it in our history. And I hope we don't have it again because food was no. It's never supposed to be engineered in a factory. We love it. Most good conversation happens over coffee or over food or over drink. That's been the way it's been for tens of thousands of years since we stopped being nomadic and we learned to farm. So I get bloody excited about it. So yeah, I may not do any more restaurants, but I do hope I can spend the next 10 years getting the British public to understand how much is going on behind the scenes of something that they take for granted on a daily basis because it's, it's so exciting. Brilliant. That's a real passion coming to life. There, yes. isn't there? So actually, the, one of the things is You've always funded your growth organically. Yes. You've never taken in any investment. Correct. Well, apart from the bank. Apart from the bank. Yeah. yeah. And that's a journey and a story and being supportive, but yeah. it's always been organic growth. Mm. It's always been self-invested. Yeah. Do you look back now and regret that, or is it something that you feel you're proud to have done? Because the other model in hospitality is particularly what's happened in the sector and won't let you get on your high horse again, but <laughs> Off you, you've had the kind of VCs, equity funds come in and try and exponentially grow brands. Yes. But you've always done it organically with no outside, not even a business angel type investor. Yeah. Um, do Would I have done it that way? I, I, I'm not, I guess if the right angel had come along and knocked on the door and said, hey, I've got shed loads of money, I'd like to help you with this. Um, then I would probably have had the conversation with them, I guess. Um, but yeah, there is a stubborn, proud bit of me that just goes, yeah, just you know, just do it yourself. Um, I guess the opportunity has not presented itself. I've certainly heard enough about disastrous kind of business partnerships and business relationships where I've looked on and gone, I don't really want the complication. I don't really probably, I, I, I run the business very democratically with my team, so it's not like it's a dictatorship, but I'd worry slightly if somebody was putting money in that it skews the decision-making. And I, I don't really feel like, you know, comfortable having that level of sort of responsibility and accountability uh, to an investor. The whole point of doing this was to create things that don't exist and to be free. And I think if you had an investor, the right investor maybe it would work, but most of the time I'd always be thinking, oh, what are they thinking? What are they thinking I'm doing with their money? And that and that would completely eat, gnaw away at me, yeah. gnaw away at my freedom that I just don't think um, psychologically I'd be comfortable. It could easily tarnish that purpose that you had, that fundamental yeah, thing that drives you. Definitely, yeah. It's like doing doing the podcast, going back to that, but you know that's all completely self-funded. It's not sponsored. If somebody came along and offered to sponsor it now, you know, I wouldn't take the money because I've got to create it for the right reasons to start with. Ultimately, you have to have cash to survive, don't you? But yeah. it's not its not the motivator. Okay. So what drives you when it does get tough? You know, we all have these journeys where things get tough, don't they? And probably relatively tough times now, opening a new venue while scaling up from the summer in the other venues. Mm. What keeps you going? What, what's the thing that, you know, makes you get up at 5 a.m. and... Uh, and, keep, and keep going. Yeah, yeah I, th I think partly it's the excitement of creating something. And then there's definitely a fear factor of messing it up. I think it changes. I think initially it was because I wanted to be proud of myself and I wanted to kind of prove that I could do it, not to anyone else, just to myself. Now it's probably a little bit different. I, I'm probably more nervous but and maybe more cautious because of the kids and because of Fee and the family and stuff like that because you do think, oh, look, you're not supposed to be reckless anymore. When I did your perspective. Yeah, it? when I didn't own anything, it was kind of like I'd sign all the personal guarantees you needed, I'd borrow all the bank debt, I didn't really care because I didn't have any money, I didn't come from money, you know, you can't leave with it. Now I look at the kids. Even then, though, I still think you know if we ended up in a, in a living in a you know in a mobile home on a campsite somewhere, it would be fine. <laughs> and Fee's pretty supportive, so we don't have a particularly decadent style yeah. of life. But it is a motivator now to go. Yeah, don't mess this up because actually I've you know I've bought and renovated a lovely house in the last few years, and I love it. And it's near the sea, and I've got a dog, and you know we're not really at the point of traveling as much as I want to yet. But I always wanted to show the kids the world, go on safari, dive the the barrier reef. So I'm I am motivated not by materialistic things, but at least by opportunity and excitement and. 
you know, we live for such a short period of time. We're not on planet Earth for long. I love the planet. I want to go and see it. So travel would be, yeah, not failing and travel would be my motivators, I think. Fantastic. Keeps you going. Yes, very much so. So, you know, I'm a big believer in, in that actually, you know, even those of us in business that, you know, even when you're succeeding, you've got to keep developing as an individual. Personal mm -hmm. development is key to future success. And it gets you out of the moment and drives you towards the future. Yes. What's your view on self-development, personal development? Mark? Yeah, hugely. And again, only, only become more so. So I'm way less interested in the traditional academic route of degrees. I, I yeah. question uh, a lot of traditional education. But continual development, I don't question at all. You know, so, so constantly learning. We are, the biggest change for me in, in learning in the last 20, 30 years is, is that we all have that ability because of the internet. We, there is no excuse anymore. People might moan and whinge about their lot in life and not being born with a silver spoon and all that kind of stuff. But if you can get to the internet and now you can do that on a pretty cheap kind of, you know, tablet or mobile device, you've got all of the world's learning at your fingertips. So it's no longer about your education or who you know. All you've got to do is be driven and self-motivated. And even if you're not, get on YouTube and watch some motivational, inspiring videos and learn. And now we can learn through audio books, through podcasts, driving our cars, through videos on our phone. There's no excuse not to be constantly learning and developing all of the time. So for me, I think it's one of the most exciting times to be alive on Earth because we're just surrounded by limitless information. Yeah, I think that accessibility to the ability to learn it's immense, and it's one of the things that the world is changing, technology is changing for us. Yeah. And you've got to embrace it. And it's a leveller, isn't it? You can be Absolutely. literally, you know, sat on a on an African or an Indian hillside with, you know, with no running water and limited power, but they've still got mobile phones and tablets and satellite connection to the internet. And, uh, you know, so for anybody in the West to moan and whinge about the lack of opportunity, I just think we are surrounded by opportunity. Just, yeah, develop. Brilliant. So, um, podcast is called Evolve to Succeed. Yes. So, how do you think you have evolved as an individual in the last fifteen years? <laughs> oh, that's a that's a it's it's a, it's a good question, isn't it? What's I, I think you go from the um, from thinking to knowing, and so when fifteen years ago I thought a lot of things about myself, whereas now I know them. You know, I've kind of learned over the last fifteen years. I know you know, why I'm here, I know what I love to do. Uh, and that just comes from experience. So it makes me much, uh, much calmer, less, um, still emotionally driven from a passion perspective. <laughs> but I, I, I think when you're in business for long enough, you realize that every day, probably something's going to go wrong. You know, the, that I love in your book, the, uh, the chart of, you know, your, your theoretical progression through yeah. business or through life is a nice sort of linear line from um, zero to a hundred or whatever it be. And the reality is just this crazy spider's webs of ups and downs. And you just get to the point in business eventually where you go, okay, I wasn't planning for that. That wasn't on any of our kind of predictions or models, but it is the reality. And you just take a deep breath and you deal with it. And, and that, yeah, that confidence, I guess, to just deal with whatever crops up. I, I learned very young, luckily, that everybody's winging it. And I think it's one of the key things I learned maybe when I was 20, where some people don't get that until they're 40 or 50. But once you learn that nobody knows all the answers, no, I, I don't know how to run my restaurant business and you don't know how to run your accountancy business yeah. or how to set up Evolve and turn that into a national thing, you don't know how to do it now, but you'll learn. And it'll be a great buzz doing it. And um, and you're, you're as able as anybody else to look at it rationally, analyse it and make a decision that needs making. That's the biggest evolution fantastic so that's good so um how can people get in touch with you how do people get yeah, don't send me an email <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you can't get in touch yeah. with me yeah. um yeah social media so twitter at mark crib is probably the easiest one uh mark crib i think on linkedin instagram yeah. facebook all pretty much the same but the twitter handle is the easiest probably at mark crib and podcast available on all platforms podcasts, yeah on all platforms humans of hospitality um yep just google that and it will come up it's on spotify itunes all the rest and uh and i get to have some fascinating conversations as do you so thank you for letting me have this one with you fantastic Mark. thank you for your time today it's been an absolute pleasure good luck brilliant thank you cheers i do hope you've enjoyed that interview with mark because i have found one of my greatest challenges is the ability to be consistent in being present in the moment and getting that right balance between family and business then i was fascinated to hear mark's perspective on work-life balance 
It certainly made me reflect on what I could do better to spend more great quality time with Michaela, Alex and Savannah. There are many coaches and influencers out there that talk of the constant foot-on need for graft and hustle and that this is the only way you're going to succeed. This is not a view I share, but from my own journey, I had empathy with the sacrifices and dedication and hard work needed by Mark in those early years. However, I think Mark's proven ability to go on to grow a management team and delegate is one that we can all reflect and learn from. Finally, I love the concept of going from thinking to knowing and how this enables you to evolve as an individual. I hope you've enjoyed this first edition of the Evolve to Succeed podcast. Watch this space for episode two coming soon.